After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. Hi, it's Raghu, back with Mind Rolling, and today uh, I've got a wonderful guest we're just meeting. I say that with everybody because I only just meet them when I'm doing a podcast for the most part. It's, <laughs> it's, that's, it's a great way to meet people. Uh, and uh, Jamal Yogis, Yogi? Yogis. It's yogis, but we can go yogis. I like yogi, yogis so, yeah. <laughs> for the podcast. Yeah. yeah, and and if you think like I might have thought, who calls themselves yogis? You know, uh, like when I first uh, heard of him, uh, heard of Jamal, and uh, the reality is it's his real name. Okay, so anybody who's getting all snickety about that, <laughs> forget about it. <laughs> right, right. Yogis plural, man. You bought that one. Yeah, yeah it's Lithuanian. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me. It's Lithuanian. Uh, yogis is, uh, but you know they do say that Lithuanian is the is one of the closest uh, to Sanskrit of mm. the European languages. So who knows? You know, maybe there's some yogis <laughs> in our lineage, way back. So uh, Jamal wrote a. He's written several books. This is third book, I believe. All our waves are water, stumbling toward enlightenment and the perfect ride. And uh, what's fun for me about this, and it's a it's a memoir book, uh, memoir ish. Uh, Jamal is a surfing aficionado, so he uh, there's some great great surf uh, stories in there, as well as uh, stumbling after enlightenment towards enlightenment which uh so i related with all of that because that's what i did you know a long time ago same kind of a deal stumbled over to india and just like what (laughs) so uh it's a wonderful book and i what i especially like in it is the way that i think a lot of people who listen to this podcast can relate with you know you were over there you were early 20s right maybe you're around 30 now Something like that. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, now the book takes place a little while before now, so I'm 37 now, and that it starts off. I think I'm 23 up in the Himalayas. Yeah. Uh huh. Oh. So it's uh, yeah. There's a lot of uh, relating that uh, people can do when they first realize that there is a possibility of uh, just simply being happy, happier than you might have been, just walking around like, what is this about? Uh, and, uh, and Jamal, like me and many people, especially from my era, early 70s, late 60s, early 70s, uh, went off to India because that seems like a prime place to uh, find yourself uh, just because the atmosphere, the atmosphere there is so conducive to that. But nobody's got to go to India, so don't write me about that, okay? But if you do, I'll, I might tell you where to go. Uh, so interestingly enough, uh, uh, you spent time with uh, the yogi Haridas Baba, who lives in California, and came here just after I went. To, when I went to India, he was on his way here to America. Do you know his relationship to uh, Neem Karoli Baba, to us? You know, I'm, I'm having trouble remembering. I know there is a connection, but um, but yeah, refresh my memory, because I, uh, when I lived there with Baba Haridas, uh, it was before actually this trip to India that where the book starts, and um, I lived there for about six months with him. <clears throat> it was really a, a blessed period of life. Uh, but, and I do remember studying some of the lineage, but I can't remember. 
Yeah. Well, he was a, a one could probably call a disciple, although Maharaji Neem Karoli Baba didn't have any disciples. It was all devotees. It was Bhakti Yoga tradition. Uh, and he didn't teach anything. So, but Haridas was absolutely very close to him. He he's he's from Nainital, which is the town that we go to all the time still after all of these years, which is close to the temples that Maharaji built around in the Kamoan. And uh, he built the first Hanuman temple in Nainital of Maharaji, actually the, the Hanuman temple in Nainital, which is a, a beautiful uh, British uh, resort town. It's where they went to get away from the heat in the summer. It's where everybody is now. And uh, he, this is an extraordinary temple, and he did an extraordinary job put, building this uh, on behalf of, I mean, w- with Maharaji or on behalf. And then he, uh, he abruptly left, and there's a whole thing which I don't know the details of what happened, but he abruptly left. He, he was Maun. He was silent, Baba. And he left, yeah. and he went to California, and he established a... Uh, uh, <clears throat> A temple, well, not a temple, a an ashram. I have never been there, actually, so I'm not even sure what, what it is, but certainly like a retreat place of some sort, right? Like a retreat center. Mm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, it's a cool, really cool mountainside where they did it because Thich Nhat Hanh has a monastery down the road, and then there's also a Christian mm. uh, monastery up there, so it must be sort of a, you know, a, a blessed spot. But yeah, now it's coming back to me. And he that doesn't surprise me that he built an amazing temple because he was, even in his 70s, uh, when I lived there, we were, you know, we had to work and we were on rock crew and we were always building, building out the temple more. And 70s, um, you? When he was in the set, when he was there in the 70s, I was there. Oh, when you're seven. Ah. And he would be out there. We'd be breaking rocks and doing pretty like uh, big time construction. And he was out there lifting, and we did <laughs> it was fun before. We would do rock crew, they called it. He had a class for the young guys and, and girls called uh, Power Pranayama. So we'd go and do a bunch of pranayama, and then we'd go and, oh, like, do some hard construction work. Uh, it was good times. Yeah. Anyhow, not to make any kind of big deal, but there certainly is a major connection between Haridas Baba. In fact, we just had over someone who actually is, was very close to him, uh, named K.K. Shah, who was one of our mentors in India when we were back there with Ramdas a second time. And there were several families that like we were really close to, and he was one of them. He is one of them. And he was close to Haridas Baba, who, who was a clerk in Nainital uh, at that, before all of that Denuama happened. So he knows him in a whole other picture, in a whole other life. Anyhow. Uh, That's cool. Just so, what what did prompt you though to make this journey to the east? Well, I was already interested in these contemplative traditions. I was a little bit raised in them. That's why how I got the name Jamal. And um, but I didn't start meditating on my own until I ran away from home. I was 16. I'd been getting into some mischief as like high school kids do in the suburbs. And I uh, ran away to Hawaii and thought this would be, you know, my escape from from suffering. But being 16 and alone and without money and learning to surf and getting beat up by the waves uh, was quickly destabilized. And actually, that's when I started meditating on my own. And I ended up living in a Zen monastery after high school. Um, actually first was introduced to Thich Nhat Hanh's teachings and I wanted to be a monk there, but I had in France had to come home to California after high school. And, uh, you know, long story short, I lived in a Zen monastery for a year here in California, Orthodox Chinese monastery, Chan, and decided not to be a monk and was trying to figure things out. Like, what am I going to do in the world if I'm not going to be a monk? Ended up, uh, surfing was always a huge part of my life too and so surfing was sort of helping me reintegrate into the world um, I went to live with, with uh, Baba Haridas thought I might be one of you know sort of a live a monk lifestyle up there but again I uh, 
you know, decided now I got to finish college. My, I, I kept having this kind of pull up the mountain and down the mountain, you know, up to the seclusion and then the marketplace as, as is common. And then my first love, you know, in college ended up being an Indian American woman who I call Sati in the book. And so she was sort of like, helped me get into the world, transition into a regular job and stuff, because she was very ambitious. And I thought, well, if I'm going to woo this woman, Sati, <laughs> I've got to have, have, a, have a future plan. And, uh, and we were planning right after graduation from college that we'd go live in India for a year and do some service work. And she would get to know her family, who she was didn't really know. And a month before the trip, she found someone else. And, you know, our relationship was a little rocky anyway. But long story short, she found someone else. I was reeling, you know, just as heartbroken as it was more pain than I ever believed was possible. You know, just heart completely shut down. And I decided to go to India anyway and be strong. And at the time, I thought, I was completely removed from my practice, more or less. Like I, the whole thing had destabilized me, and I was meditating a little bit, but mostly I just wanted to get Sati back. And uh, so I was running around India doing journalism and trying to do things that I thought might win her back in some way, and failing miserably at that, and just miserable. And eventually, uh, you know, I went up to Baba Haridas's ashram and I was doing some yoga, but I was just, my mind and heart weren't in it. All I cared about was finding Sati. So I finally made it up to the Himalayas where I'm teaching some, tutoring some Tibetan monks in English. And I meet a Tibetan monk who instantly we have this connection and his name's Sonam. And he turns out, I, I, we start hanging out and it turns out he's heartbroken too. And he's, he's looking for his family um, who he left in Tibet when he was 11 to ordain with the Dalai Lama. And now he's lost touch and he's very sad about this. And he doesn't know if they're alive because the occupation's gotten more crazy. So it's basically, you know, that begins uh, the spiritual pilgrimage part of India was finally seeing so Nam grieving his family and how different it was that I was grieving Sati. Because the pivotal moment really came when we were hiking up in the Himalayas, as we did almost every day. And we went up high one day to make an offering to some hermits, and he picked up some snow. And he goes, oh, this India snow, very same, same Tibet snow, many, many sad, thinking my family. And I put my arm around him, and I'm like, I just said, I'm so sorry, you know, about the situation and that you can't find your family. And he looked at me, and he had tears in his eyes. And he laughed and he goes, Jama, you funny. This very sad, no problem. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, that very sad, no problem became kind of a mantra. And it broke me out of this habit I was, I was in of using meditation kind of to skim over emotions. Like mm -hmm. you want to be there. You want to be the guru right away. And, and it's and, called spiritual know. bypass. <clears throat> right. Exactly. And, I think being around all those Tibetan deities where they have, you know, the wrathful and the, and the uh, ethereal are all revered and part of the nature, you know, part of God. And, and so that, along with seeing Sonam, really live that non-duality was, uh, was, was powerful. So it, that's, uh, I was struck in the book by how that the uh, your relationship with him and his attitude, of course, prompted you to really seriously consider the reality of what he was what he was living, uh, and and see how it would apply. And, and in fact, there's one part um, you say in the book. I often wondered how Sonam maintained his contentment while also clearly grieving. I felt that I had two settings, upbeat and joyful, usually due to the future feeling bright or guilt and despair because the future, uh, it seemed difficult. These settings were more like rivals, dark and light, than parts of myself that, can, that could live in harmony. Um, 
and the, the idea of being able to uh, live on those two planes of consciousness at the same time is, is uh, in my experience in life, is, the, is one of the deepest keys to being in balance, to, to living in a balanced way on a day-to-day basis. Um, and in fact, uh, geez, I don't, I don't know. How, I mean, Ramdas himself at these retreats and things that we do, he brings that up all the time. You know, it's how do you embrace the ten thousand demons and the ten thousand uh, devas? You know, how do you yeah. embrace it in the same moment? And and this is, this takes tremendous work and and reorienting of your perspective uh, in life. Uh, you know, big time. So tell, tell, just tell me about how your perspective started to reorient as a result of the reality of um, these people that, you know, when you're with people like this, they, they definitely, that, that vibration enters into you and it does something. There's no doubt, not to mention just in India itself, which is so powerful because of its, uh, the thousands of years of embodying these, these incredible truths. Yeah, I mean, I think you 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 bring up the a great point that it's uh, the key is being around other people who have done it and kind of mirroring them because of course I was familiar with these ideas that you know any you read a few spiritual books and you get familiar with this notion of non-duality that you know the Buddha nature or whatever you want to call it is as much in the dishes and the fear as it is in the peak moments of bliss. But meanwhile, you know, you're approaching practice in, in a, in a more graded way where you're saying, you know, I'm here and I want to be there. And so I meditate for a little bit and, and I feel a little better, but then I fall back again and, and you're kind of, you're, you're, you're judging your meditation just like you're judging, uh, you know, any, thing in the world you know whether you like a movie or not or you know and so seeing sonam embody this was one thing but of course i had to mix it with intense period of practice so that moment the this very sad no problem i did start repeating that to myself and trying to grieve a little bit more just letting myself cry but it didn't i didn't really i couldn't really do it i'd been trained I think as a, a male in America, you know, you're trained not to really feel. It's like feelings are are a sign of weakness or what what have you. And I'd come from a long lineage of military men and mm. so forth. So, uh, but anyway, I went in, I, I met a friend, as I talk about in the book, who actually I met uh, doing yoga teacher training with Baba Haridas. And I hadn't seen her in years. And she was this New Yorker, real fast-talking businesswoman who was just getting into yoga with Baba Haridas. And at the time, she seemed like she was you know, a real beginner and was asking silly questions. Then I, what I perceived as silly questions then. And then I ran into her in India, and she'd been practicing really seriously with Tibetan lamas for years. And she looked amazing, and she was so radiant. And she looked at me and she goes, you look awful, (laughs) you know, from, uh, and it was true. I felt awful. I was still in this pining for sati business. And she said, you need to go on retreat. And, and so I kind of, I took her word for it and I went on a 10 day silent retreat and yeah, Vipassana retreat, right? A Vipassana retreat. It was a Gawinka retreat. It was just, I, I almost didn't care what the style was. I just wanted to go into a deep, silent retreat. So I went on a Vipassana retreat. Yeah. And, you know, as happens on silent retreat, you want to leave on the first day and you're thinking, gosh, I have nine more days of this. <laughs> and then, mm-hmm. but, you know, by day five or six, uh, I got a memory of Sati and started crying. And I think usually I would have used like some Chan stoicism to sort of try to cut the emotion off. But I was thinking of Sodanam's this very sad, no problem, you know, just feel it, let it come through. I wasn't chasing the sadness, but just letting it be. And it turned out that I cried for about three days on that <laughs> retreat. I mean, literally, I would go into a do a sit, you do about an hour, and then I would go back to my little hut and just sob. And it was it wasn't like I was trying to, it was just coming through. And um I'm assuming it was more than 
the gal though at the some gal, point. Yeah, right. You're right. You you hit the nail on the head. Is uh, first the tears were coming about Sati, and then I was you know all of a sudden these memories of my parents' divorce of you know a tr- you know trauma on the playground in second Suffering, grade. It was yeah. like all these layers of the onion, you know, getting peeled away. And uh, so, you know, I can only imagine that continues and continues and continues and spiritual layers of karma. But, you know, I was sort of just working through all those emotional layers on that retreat. Mm. Yeah. And uh, there's uh, there's a quote that you make of, well, I love this one. Without a hat, a winter rain falls on me. So what, Basho? We can't yeah. get we can't get with that kind of stuff here in the West. You know, it's just like people. You know what? No, no, it hurts. We have no ability, and, and I include myself, by the way, no ability to withstand. Uh, discomfort. I mean, I can withstand a lot of discomfort because I spent a lot of time in India, but the kind of emotional discomfort, for instance, or uh, things obviously like grief and any all the different kinds of suffering. You have this quote in here. Uh, you call a Buddha's first teaching, it's sort of translated as life is a bumpy ride. Uh, he's, birth is, is suffering Aging is suffering, death is suffering, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair are suffering. Association with the unbeloved is suffering. I love that. Separation from the loved is suffering, and not getting what is wanted is suffering. And uh, we have no way in the West, uh, we are trained in the opposite way to avoid it at all costs so we have no way to be like your friend sonam yeah it's 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 true i mean we i think we do have a way and but we are it's a reversal of the of what we're trained in yeah i'm not sure where that comes from but it seems like there's we're trained in the west to think if we work hard enough that at some point the suffering is going to stop, <laughs> it's almost like there's a, there's a goal where if you get that money and get the yeah, relationship right. and get the car, that it'll be good, you know, and, and the suffering. And, and so you, you, and, and they write insurance plan and all of it, you know, you, that it's going to be perfect. And I think, I think that's almost, it's that expectation that life at some point will be a happy circumstance rather than, you know, just the opposite perspective, which is, well, of course the happiness has to be found inside because the circumstances are always going to be bumpy. You know, we live in samsara. This is, you know, the bumpy ride. And, um, and I love, yeah, I just, I love that about traveling to, to India or meeting people like Sonam because, they're expecting it. It's like, yeah, you know, you, you, <laughs> this is part of life. Death is part of life. Sickness is part of life. So uh, you don't shy away from it or wiggle, try to wiggle away from it as mm-hmm. much. And But I think, you know, here we are in the great sort of integration of ideas. And um, you can, you know, it, but I, I'm glad you brought up that it's about being around people who do have that perspective because you can read about it and you can try to practice it in your meditation in your life but as soon as you meet somebody who's living this sort of integrated way it becomes much easier (laughs) yeah yeah well i'm living proof of that (laughs) meeting who i met but there's another i was gonna i couldn't unfortunately I'll, i'll paraphrase it but there's a there was somebody I wanted to bring up to you and quote from. Uh, his name is Dilgo Kensi Rinpoche. People who listen to Mind Rolling, they, uh, I refer to him s- quite a bit. Um, mm. He's was. Uh, do, have you heard of him, Dilgo Kensi Rinpoche? He, he died in the, the name. 80s. The name rings a bell. Is was he? Uh, was he one of the uh, in the Galupka tradition, the the Dalai Lama's 
lineage? Yeah, I, I believe so. And he was a yeah. teacher of the Dalai Lama. Um, he was one of the greatest uh, lamas of the last you know, century. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was, yeah. as, as they say, but uh, he, he's just tremendous. Anyhow, he, um, what he said, and we're talking about meeting somebody who embodies rather than teaches these, what we're, we go to meditation courses for and mindfulness courses and chant and pray and meditate that they, they live it and they don't, there's, they don't have to do anything. Um, and he says, if you meet such a being, there is no estimation of the value of that meeting of of and for them spiritual uh, a true teacher and a and a um, siddha or bodhisattva. They're talking about a bodhisattva, mm -hmm. not to, not somebody who teaches, but someone who is it. Not mm -hmm. somebody who points the way, but someone who is the way. And mm -hmm. that rub off is is absolutely incredible. And he says there isn't anything that's more important in this life if you manage to meet the teacher hmm. the true teacher hmm. and um and in my experience and, and knowing with neem karoli baba there wasn't a necessity it has not been and it's current you know people meet him all the time he does obviously through dreams and through day-to-day -day experience through reading about him through seeing a picture whatever they they have they don't need a body so uh it's not a matter of trying to run off what i'm trying to say is run off to india necessarily although there's nothing wrong with going to India as well. There are still beings there that are absolutely incredible. And you yourself, you met somebody who, this monk, right? Who was just a regular monk. Mm -hmm. but, yeah. but he embodied a, a certain um, visceral understanding of reality that mm -hmm. uh, is not... Um, it, it, that's the beauty of India. There's people like this popping around. That uh, there are living. <laughs> absolutely, yeah. I, I love that quote. Well, and he led me to, you know, there's sort of people, you know, like the Tibetan mandala. You have the these sort of levels of uh, deities and ordinary folk and bodhisattvas with the Buddha at the center. And Sonam was, you, sometimes you meet one of the people on the periphery of the mandala and they lead you toward, toward the center. And I, Sonam led me to various people who I only met briefly. Uh, and one of them was this hermit who I write about. When we get involved in the, the story goes on and Sonam develops a, a scheme to go and find his family and, um, and we go and see this hermit who's meditating in the highlands above uh, Bagsunat. And this is, uh, this is pretty, pretty common that, you know, once you have done your study and, and, and all your offerings and such, you know, maybe the last 20 years as a monk, you'll go and live in the highlands and just, just meditate, just practice. And we were bringing offerings to, to him, uh, and, and when we got up there, I mean, it was lit he, he opened the door and was laughing and he said, oh, you know, had no idea we were coming. And he said, oh, of course, I, I knew I should make lunch for three. And he invited mm -hmm. us in. And, and we had this delicious lunch with a hermit and no language. I mean, no English. <clears throat> and to this day, I mean, just that hour in this hermit's hut was probably one of the most profound moments of my life and it was nothing he said we were talking about logistics you know and it was just you i felt pinpricks and you know you, you know all the things that you can't describe in language um and then when he took my hands and this happened to me several times in that area navigating around with sonam where an older monk would come and grab me by the hands. And this was, this hermit was one and another guy just randomly did it, uh, uh, a Lama or Rinpoche. And they just take your hands and, and almost looked like they were going to cry and just, you know, say some mantras or just say a few words and that I couldn't understand. And it was like that transference or whatever happened was worth all the, mo all the meditation 
you know, mm-hmm. of the retreat mm. because you saw what was possible. You saw it in their eyes and you felt it. And then there was, of course, you know, we are more like waves than, than solid stone or something. So whatever is happening between you and that exchange is, is, is profound. Mm. So, yeah, it's very fortunate to, to be there at all. And I think you kind of, you get into it. It's like getting, it's like getting in the river, you know, you meet one person like Sanam and then he, he teaches you a few things and then, but then you're in the river and, and so you, you know, and there's all kinds of people who are of a similar mind sort of in that stream. And, and, uh, yeah, I love that you're, I love just talking about it cause I can kind of, you know, it's a, it's like, it's in the past, but that, frame of mind that can happen in the Himalayas it's like it's always there yeah. <laughs> and yeah, you can yeah. kind of tap into it yeah <clears throat> yeah what have been your I'm curious because you've been doing this much longer what have your did you uh been your sort of moments like that in you know meeting teachers I'm sure there have been many but well uh, no I'm I mean there hasn't well I have met you know a lot of different teachers babas yogis swamis and all of it because it's been such a long period but but there was no one there has nobody like neem karolibov i mean absolutely you know he is considered you know he's considered in india a siddha not a saint you know there's like for every you know thousand saints there's maybe a siddha you know this is a well you were in india so they consider uh, Shirdi, you've seen Shirdi Sai Baba. Oh, he's everywhere in India, right? The yeah, sh- yeah, sure, yeah. So he is. Um, he's probably considered the uh, the most transparent um, I- uh, example of of a siddha. Like he was not. A, there was no attachment to anything. There was nothing. Whole, they lived in non-duality in a body, which is rare, and only through the love of the devotees. And they don't teach except by their being. They don't write books. They don't give lectures or anything like that. So Maharaji was very much that. And um, mm-hmm. I mean, y- your story of the hermit saying, "Oh, you've come. Oh, I'm glad I cooked for three. <laughs> So there's a famous story with Ramdas getting on a bus going out of a Vipassana course and with 27 people and they were on their way to Delhi and they stopped they were going through Allahabad and they and somebody said oh let's go to where the uh, Ganges meets the, the Ganga and the uh, Yamuna and Saraswati meet together it's where the big mailers are kum and uh, big gatherings and uh, he said, he's thinking to himself, shit, no, I want to go get an ice cream in Delhi. I've been in this <laughs> meditation course. It's like, I got to have a bed, uh, you know, forget about it. But there was a, at the same time, he thought, well, we should, you know, Ramdas wanted to do the righteous thing, do something spiritual. So somebody said, make a left. And he made the left. And, uh, you know, he made that decision because it was, he got, he hired the bus. And they went down there and someone said, oh, let's go to a Hanuman temple. There's Hanuman in, in the Mela. And uh, they went there, and as they got there, Maharaji arrived. At that. They hadn't been able to find him for uh, like months, four months. They couldn't find him in India. So they had done this meditation course. And they arrived there, and there he is. And he says, follow me back. Of course, they all freak out that he's there with this devotee. Yeah. And they go to the devotee's house. His name was Dada Mukherjee, great, uh, one of our mentors. And his wife comes out and he tells, uh, she tells Ramdas, oh, Maharaji woke us up at 6 o'clock in the morning and said, you're going to have 28 guests for dinner, for lunch. Prepare. <laughs> Same kind of, you know, these things. And they do. Yeah. They point to, okay, I mean, that's obviously uh, once you're dipped into whatever it is that's the one, however you want to call whatever it is, is. Mm it's all accessible and so that's not you know the big deal is the unconditional love and Mm -hmm. that's you know you were approached by somebody who looks at you like you know you're the last person on earth Mm -hmm. and and they they they're holding you in that moment that's Mm -hmm. something that as you just said never leaves never leaves you know yeah that's very true and uh 
Yeah, it's it's uh, and it's so different than what these sort of just de-stress like mindfulness courses are. That you know, I think are are the rage now in different you know corporate settings and whatnot. You can get like meditations being taught as just sort of take the edge off, get a little bit better at work, be more productive, <laughs> which yeah. is all all good. I mean, I, I think it's all good. If you dip a toe, you know, it can all of a sudden reveal all sorts of other aspects. But when you see somebody who has this look of unconditional love in their eyes for a stranger yeah. and that they developed that, that heart it's um you just see what's possible and yeah, i think it's mo- it. it's motivate it's motivational yeah. because it's not easy to do the practice and it's and you know you, you it's easier just to watch tv and you know yeah. go go get the money or whatever but <laughs> yeah. um you know uh so yeah it's for the it's it is for it is the most important thing i think is being able to see the potential yeah in and a teacher's eyes yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. that's what it is. I mean, not to mention, of course, uh, in in our case, and a case of meaning the people that were there, Krishna Das. You know, I don't know if you know, maybe you know mm-hmm. Krishna Das is most people. Sure, know. yeah. And Ram Das and myself, and there's people like uh, Larry, Doctor Larry Brilliant, who helped uh, suppress uh, or get rid of smallpox in the East. Uh, um, Danny Goldman, who's you know people who really uh, were given a mission when they came back without being given anything, although with Larry yeah. Brilliant's case, uh, that's a wonderful book called, uh, by the way, Sometimes Brilliant. You might like it. Mm. And you out there mm. listening right now, Sometimes Brilliant, Larry Brilliant. Uh, it's a it's a wonderful book that really describes that whole thing around him getting to India and then um, being told by Maharaji, go to UN and you be part of getting rid of smallpox. I mean, he was a long-haired hippie doctor that couldn't get mm. arrested at the UN. It was a great story. Oh, uh, right. I'm recalling this now. Yeah. yeah. He worked for, for Google. And yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. Of course. Exactly. Yeah. So, so uh, you know, certainly, um, you know, there's some real um, uh, manifestations of, of it that he, physical manifestations in terms of what he did with people that their whole lives were were changed and put into a direction that was really a, a you know has been of, of service for sure ramdas being the, the biggest uh, example of that but the 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 idea that the, you look at the also the big also is what you said seeing the potential of of the uh, of this uh, being is a human being still you know mm-hmm. obviously mm-hmm. has karma of you know eons to to be born like this because uh you know they it's not a matter of being taught in this lifetime and that's why i love so the seeing the potential is really important and that's why i love what his holiness the dalai lama represents these days mm-hmm. in the world you know my only religion is kindness you know mm-hmm. and it's about he's he talks a lot about secular ethics and so on um i mean there's this so this Dilgo Kensi Rinpoche, let me just share one little thing. Um, he's just talking about, um, how, you know, people go out and teach the Dharma to hundreds of thousands of students and do thousands of practices and meritorious acts. But if self-clinging is still your mind's most firmly rooted theme, your activity will never be that of a bodhisattva. It'll or never be that of uh, real open-heartedness. To be a, a, a bodhisattva and carry out a bodhisattva's activity, you must uproot all trace of selfishness from within. That's the, mm-hmm. To me, that's the place to start. With the, You don't have to have a mm-hmm. big thing around enlightenment and, and being this, that, being anything. But but mm-hmm. really dealing, I mean, we we see our selfishness on a day to day basis, do we not? I mean, it's amazing, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Um, so I I, I just uh, that's why there's a gr- lot of wonderful passages in in the book where you are you know very very honest with where you're at, and uh, uh, and I think in the reading of that, I mean, you're pointing to to uh, to something that I think is really 
really great for people to relate with. I thought you were a little younger, but you know, you're really old, <laughs> 37. Well, I, I'm I'm writing about a period where I'm younger because I thought the stories in from that period would be, uh, uh, you know, sometimes having a little adventure tale to go along with <laughs> the. Uh, the the moment allows people to relate and i was able to travel a lot in that time of life so um but uh i think you're right i mean going back to your quote that that's the place to start and it's one of the reasons i come back to you know i think i could be making metaphors about golf or baseball or cooking just as much as i could surfing but there is one thing that uh going back to living sort of in touch with the divine in, you know, the midst of the madness of, of uh, everyday life is that the wave metaphor is really good because it gives you a, a, a tangible notion that, okay, even when you're caught in self-clinging or really in a spiral of anxiety and you're telling all these stories about whatever, how awful you are, or how you failed at work or in a relationship, or, you know, the, those dark moments that how do you flip that into, well, this too is the oneness or this too is the divine. And it's, if you, if you see that thought process as a wave, it's that spiraling wave, mm. what is its essence? Its essence is always water. And so there's this energy that you're caught in, you know, and you can kind of be resisting it. But just like getting caught in a wave, if you resist it, you run out of air, you're fighting, you're, it's much worse. But if you kind of just let go, the wave passes by and you end up saving your energy and then you come up and then you're just, it's just water again. And so, and it was always water mm. to begin with. And so, yeah, it's a tangible metaphor to work with. And because you know, reality is actually the little Legos do move as particles and waves, you know, as we're learning now from particle physics, I think there's something there as well in that this theme of waves uh, is some part of us deep down, like knows experientially, <laughs> you know, how that works. And so you trigger this sort of meta um, picture of the sea and 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 people get it it's like they're like oh yeah this emotion is coming through like a wave but i'm the sea i don't have to identify with this wave and say oh this is me this is you know uh, this is why i'm you know failing again it's like no that's just that's just a passing energy and 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 when you look at when you're the ocean it's like it doesn't matter if it's a tsunami you know it's like you can handle that it's like a blip, you know, so. How about, yeah, one of the, uh, give us an example of one of those waves that you engaged with. There's a couple there that were a little bit like, wow, like that one where you oh, fell like off the literal, like a house the, the top waves. of it. <laughs> the literal waves. Yeah. Ocean waves. Yeah, uh, there's a couple stories, I mean, in the book where... Uh, one of them I'm in Bali and uh, I've basically just gotten out of graduate school where I then come and get, get a job and I'm thinking I got a magazine writing job. I got a girlfriend. I'm working in a city. Like maybe this is life. I'm an adult now. And then a year goes by and I'm like, Oh shit, is this all life is about? <laughs> you know, it's like my, I'm in the nine to five and practice is just kind of keeping my head above water. But, uh, so I go to Bali to reflect and think about, you know, what I'm really doing. And I meet this guy, Jimmy, who's, uh, an incredible surfer and also, uh, uh, sort of a yogi in his own right. And he, his spiritual awakening, if you will, came when he was uh, surfing an outer atoll in Indonesia and he got a cerebral malaria coma. Oh. And months later, Whoa. he woke up from the coma, had to relearn how to walk and talk all over again. Mm. And so 
anyway, we're, we're out surfing at this break called Impossibles, which is a, a difficult wave. Yeah. Um, and he surfs it beautifully. And I'm the reefs in Indonesia are very dangerous because you fall and you, you get tumbled on these bacteria-ridden, razor-sharp reefs. So I'm watching Jimmy, and he's about 30 years older than me. He says, let's go surf this wave, Padang, Padang, mm. where it's even more, much more dangerous. And I basically vowed that I'm not going to surf out there on this trip because it's I've heard stories and I don't want to go home. You know, that's not the the lesson I'm looking for. Mm. But we go over and on the way, I ask him, it comes up in passing about the coma. And he says, because he says, oh, it looks like where, look, Padang looks like where I got bitten by the mosquito that gave him cerebral malaria. So I asked him about the, the what he experienced in the coma. And, and he'd never told me the story. And it turns out that he had this near-death experience, basically, where he he was, I, I won't go into the whole story because it's a bit long, but he, he was consumed in bliss. And, and he woke up from the coma after that dream saying, San Sebastian, San Sebastian, I saw an angel. And the it turns out there were very various coincidences about the San Sebastian story that he tells me. So anyway, hearing this story, it's like all of a sudden it turns on all your spiritual switches and you're like, oh yeah, you know, I don't have to be in this mindset of like trying to figure it all out, trying to, you know, what about just being and what about faith? And, uh, and so I decide, you know, he's kind of turned me on and, and, and I say, okay, I'm going to surf this scary wave. And basically, you know, everything in me is, is clamming up. I'm, I have all that adrenaline and, and, uh, and yet this huge set, massive, you know, probably two or three times my height comes and, and I think just being, again, it's like being with somebody like Jimmy, uh, who's reflecting a certain amount of fearlessness. Mm. I just find myself going and, uh, this is one of these waves that's famous for being hollow and, and where you get into the, there's really no way to make it out of the wave without being inside the wave uh, in the tube. So I zoom down this, barely make it to my feet, you know, I'm airborne, make it down to the bottom of this wave. And it does something that I've just never seen a wave look anything like this. It's like, uh, there I am. And it looks like, there's just a, a blue tunnel falling from space, you know, that's mm. about to encase me. And there's nowhere you can go. It's reef two feet below you. And so everything in you is saying leap off. But if you leap off, <laughs> you're leaping onto the reef. And so I just stay there and, and you know, it's only a few seconds that you're in the wave in this tunnel uh, but it feels like time just stops in there. And so I won't give away the whole story, but, you know, I <laughs> there I am. And, uh, and I make it just about to the end of that wave. And, um, and, you know, all this indecision that I'm in about, you know, what kind of life I want to live, it's like, that those few seconds of infinity in the tube and then the subsequent smashing onto the reef <laughs> mm. helped me, helped me find a little answer. And I, I've always found that in life that, you know, you, you sort of, when you're in those moments of indecision, you can't control it. You can't be the controller and say, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to figure this out and I'm going to lock down and, you know, and, and I'll find the answer, you know, it's more, it's much more of a surrendering. And it's the same when you're in a, mm. you have to be shaken out of your desire to control. And that's really what the wave was doing for me because you can't control. And you, I think to an extent, that's why surfers put ourselves and people and athletes, we put ourselves in those situations to be reminded, you know, ultimately that, you know, 
You can't try to control everything. Yeah, right. I, we used to have a mentor, Krishnadas and I, who's passed uh, some time back, but uh, he was, uh, there was a comic strip back in the 60s called Mr. Natural, who he was like the the guru for the hippies and so on. He was just totally present all the time. And this, this man named KC Tuari used to say to us, if you think you're doing it, my boy, you are lost <laughs> every day. So, like yeah, that. that is so true. So one, uh, we're coming to the end, but Jamal, but one thing, um, as I started this whole conversation with you out around Haridas Baba and, and the relationship to Neem Karoli Baba and us and so on, so, and you're, you're going to India, you're on your, on that classical journey to the east which we did as well and and in fact you even found vipassana which was a big thing for us too that's yeah. you know i told you the story of the bus that's where they were the vipassana course in bodh guy um so that there's a lot of, that's why this was one of the reasons that it was really um uh wonderful for me to read uh, and relate to wow fast forward from then you know 40 years 45 years and the same thing is really going on mm -hmm. and and you're being taken into the same places that we've been talking about in terms of of letting go in terms of allowing uh pain and suffering to be alongside of uh, happiness bliss etc uh so uh the other parallel if you would call it in the book is Robert Thurman, who is a good friend to to us and uh, certainly uh, many of the uh, teachers on the Be Here Now Network, Sharon Salzberg and Christian Nasser, you know, very close to uh, to Bob, mm -hmm. and, and he's such a great being. He, he We would see him pass us by when we were in with Neem Karoli Baba in the foothills of the Himalayas. He would stop, almost in way kind of a deal. It's just... Uh, so it's it's really a, a very connective thing. And he is a, a brilliant guy. And uh, so when I got to this, I guess you pulled some of this stuff that approximated being in, in talks with him and so on and so forth. I, I think that that's what you said in the book. Yeah, um, that's yeah. I wanted to get him right because because Bob speaks in in long uh monologues and it's he's very exacting and and i knew that i couldn't remember exactly his words and so i pulled some quotes from his books that mm. i mean he speaks very much like he writes so yeah uh, not far off yeah we just did a podcast together uh, recently about a month and a half ago or something yeah we he's uh, you could be with him for like hours he can go on i mean and be and it's entertaining it's not just informative and and such knowledge that he has and and practicality too he's just really wonderful but and i suppose you met him too uh finally yeah well he was uh i mean he was my professor and then he was also my uh my advisor mm. while i was in columbia so I would go into his office occasionally and usually it was about financing, you know, he would be helping me get some extra funding or something. He was always very compassionate in that regard. He would work for his students like crazy to get us a little money yeah. to be able mm -hmm. to stay at school. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, yeah, any encounter with him was always kind of magical just by virtue of who he is. You know, he's, he's such an, he, he's, he's just such a one of a kind he's got the glass eye and all the rings and as a 25 year old in grad school you have all these professors who kind of fit a type to some extent i mean you know there's a lot of diversity at columbia but he's he doesn't fit any of it you know and you're just like and i'd read some of his books but again i mean in the book i compare him to vimalakirti who's this uh, great Indian sage who lived at the time of the Buddha and was a layman who found, uh, you know, that the nature was everywhere. And he would go into casinos and go into mm. uh, gambling houses and, and, and really everywhere, po political parties. And he went in order to show that this, uh, 
this mind is possible anywhere. And, and Bob, I was reading that sutra. He's written an incredible translation of it. And, um, and then I met him and it was like, he was taking all the madness of New York and spinning it into the mandala, you know, <laughs> and just showing that, Hey, it's all, it's all right here. Yeah. And he, he laughs and the way he tells jokes and the way he brings politics into his lectures uh you just you know it's one of a kind so i had to uh he's hard to capture on the page so i used a lot of his own language yeah (laughs) just so there's one little passage that i love so much i gotta i gotta share it with you um uh, thurman says there's an extremely subtle body mind this is the indestructible drop. I never heard that before in my whole life. Indestructible drop called the energy mind indivisible of clear light transparency. It's like very hard to describe or understand. Yes, Bob. And not to be misconstrued as a rigid fixed identity. This subtlest, most essential state of an individual, you were talking about the core of what, who we are, is a being's deepest state of pure soul. Another non-Buddhist expression, yes. <laughs> Bob, where the, where the being is intelligent light, alive and singular, continuous yet changing, aware of its infinite inter- interconnection with everything it is beyond all instinct patterns of lust aggression or delusion and makes the boundless process of reincarnation possible that's fantastic okay jamal (laughs) thanks for putting this in there i mean i haven't seen that before thurman says this indestructible drop resided in the heart center which totally connects to my tradition, our tradition of bhakti yoga, you know, through through uh, Neem Karoli Baba and everything that we were given is exactly that, which it's all one circle. All of this stuff is yeah. just amazing. Oh, boy. Great book. Yeah, all I, our, Thank you. Thank you. All Thanks our waves me. are water, stumbling towards enlightenment and the perfect ride. Jamal Yogi's also uh, author of saltwater buddha we'll have to uh sometime in the nearer future let's talk about saltwater buddha and well actually you know what i was going to talk to you a little let me see time just flies here with all of this uh your last book was about the, the uh the fear project right is that correct That's, yeah that was more of a scientific uh yeah. base but Neuros- yeah. neuroscience of fear and courage <laughs> I, I would have wanted to get into it. maybe we can we'll do it again after you let's get off your book book tour, let's let's do that because these are the kinds of conversations that are the of the most interest to me, and and of course uh, I'm hoping with everybody we're sharing this with today. So thank you, Jamal. Jamal, how do people get? Do you have a website or Facebook group? People can be in touch with you. I do. Uh, yeah, I'm in all the the usual places. You know, Facebook, uh, Twitter, Instagram, um, and I announce. You know, I'm doing. Uh, doing a little bit of meditation teaching uh, mm. at like 1440 um, oh, yeah. in Santa Cruz this January. And so I have some retreats and then I'm on the road for the book right now. So yeah. probably Facebook is the easiest place to find me. I also have a website, jamalyogas.com. J-A-I-M-A-L-Y-O-G-I-S. Could not believe Jma Yogi. I mean, <laughs> derivative of okay. You can't go wrong. You're you're set, Jamal. Thank you for coming and sharing. And uh, definitely, though, I, I'm I'm serious. I want to get with you again and uh, and and just have a little bit more chat uh, around uh, this last book that you did. Uh, but Likewise. yeah, this is mind rolling. And the Be Here Now Network, go to BeHereNowNetwork.com and you can go to the page uh, where this podcast uh, resides. And we, of course, in the show notes, we'll put uh, links to the books and links to uh, Jamal 
so you can all be in touch and uh and you by the way go buy the book through amazon through our link because then we get a few uh a little bit of a percentage that helps support what we're doing and we know uh everybody uh has been great and we want you to continue to to do that because um so i can sit here and talk to people like jamal basically thank you again and we'll see you next time on Mind Rolling. <laughs>